Welcome to the Get Over Yourself podcast. This is Brad Kearns. And so I really do have a special place in my heart for folks who are trying to make the big leaps because it is difficult, it is lonely, and you're not sure you're going to make it. Um, The best thing you can do in politics is be there because you learn it in a different way than just watching it or reading the policy about it, but walking in other people's shoes. Hi, listeners. I'm very excited and honored to bring you this incredible opportunity I had to interview in person the amazing Amanda Renteria. She ran for the governorship of the great state of California in the 2018 election after this fast rising political career and incredible backstory that we get into from start to finish. Oh my gosh, it was, it was just an enlightening, incredibly inspiring interview and connection with this lady. We were talking, getting all warmed up before I hit record. I promised you on this show that we'd record the stuff that we talk about off the button, but here's my first meeting with her. We connected immediately. She welcomed me into her home without that crazy pre-screening that most politicians do. And here we are sitting down, looking at the the Mexico flag and rooting for the team and talking about their chances at the World Cup. And you are not going to believe this story. It's the American dream times 10. She's the the daughter of uh, former migrant farm workers in the Central Valley of California. She found her way to Stanford University and later Harvard Business School, just rising up the ranks and knocking off these goals. Some of the stuff is almost too good to be true or too hard to believe where uh, she's at Stanford and decides to uh, go try out for the defending national champion basketball team and later the softball team. So that little aside into her athletic career, which I wasn't really aware of, I knew about all the political stuff. I tried to do some preparatory research, but I'm like, come on, are you kidding me? You're not going to believe this story. And it's so wonderful and inspiring. Uh, She worked as the Uh, She was the first Latina chief of staff in the history of the United States Senate. And she has all these other interesting firsts, but definitely a down-to-earth lady with her heart in the right, right place. She's raising little kids now, getting them into immersion Spanish school to honor her heritage and have a great experience for the kids here in California, uh, taking a little breather on what's next for Amanda because she's jumped around, done little gigs like running the state of California's Department of Justice and a thousand plus employees and $800 million budget. So let's hear what Amanda has to say about her journey and some really beautiful insights about the importance of Uh, representing all the people in politics and democracy and all these wonderful common sense things that we've seemed to have forgotten today in this age of craziness and conflict and controversy. A great interview with Amanda. I hope you enjoy it. Okay. Amanda Renteria. Other people say Renteria. (laughs) Renteria. Or my grandma used to say Amanda Quemanda. Amanda que manda. Uh, what do you want or what yeah, are you sending? Amanda who demands. Oh, okay. Manda demands. <laughs> right, right. So uh, for those of you who didn't see her politics video, that was her opening line. I thought it was funny. You, you got me watching the whole video. And here's this lady running for governor, yep. coming out of a humble Central Valley farm town beginning, heading off to Stanford, which is an improbable journey, then off to Harvard, Harvard Business School, and then uh, going right into this career in public service. And boy, I just said, you know what? I want to get get her on the podcast 
tell your story. Um, we got warmed up already before I hit record, and I promised my listeners we'd talk about the stuff that goes on when we're not recording, so I'm like, let's go, let's do it. So the first topic, of course, essential to discuss, Mexico's chances in the 2018 World Cup. We saw this incredible start, and then they lost to Sweden the, the day we're recording this, but what are we thinking? Can they, can they go all the way? Can they go past round five for the first time since ever, ever? I think they can, yeah. yes. Um, it depends on what team shows up, right? I mean, the team that showed up this morning looked so different than that team in Germany. And certainly expectations are high, but, I mean, these guys are professionals. They know uh, how to work under pressure and work on expectations. Um, but, you know, I think, it's, I think it was an okay one because it was a rude awakening. You got to be there every single game. I mean, this is the World Cup. And, uh, and so I feel good about it, actually. Um, you know, I think they also saw something a little bit different in the other team. I mean, Sweden looked great. They put it together. They look very different than in some of their other games that I've had a chance to watch. Um, so we'll see. But I, I like Mexico's chances. I mean, I think Ochoa is solid. Oh, he's um, the best. And that'll, and yeah, that'll make a huge goalie. difference. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, my son's like a, a soccer fanatic, which is so interesting. He was a basketball player all the way along, but him and all his buddies, including these football stars from high school, they're obsessed with soccer and it's the best show. And like we sit back now with all these traditions in America, like the NFL, which is a stupid sport where we're, I don't know how long we're going to tolerate these guys getting pounded and having the, a lifetime of suffering just to perform for us. It's like gladiator age. And then you have baseball, which is so boring. There's no way it's going to survive. It is not going to survive. And then you have no, a No, no, no. I played softball in college. And softball? what I will say, Softball's it's more exciting. interesting than Softball's baseball, right? So I just, wanna, I just want to make yeah. plant that seed a little bit, that yeah. it is more exciting than baseball, it's, actually. It's just, I don't know why it's different. It's just fast, <laughs> fast action, those pitchers, you know. Um, so, but... Uh, he was talking about the significance of the World Cup and how, you know, this myopic view in America where we think the Super Bowl is a big deal. And this thing is so much grander on scale and the pressure on those players. Ochoa is literally the entire nation is, is counting on this guy. And there's nothing to compare because even with the Super Bowl, we got people and our fans in the different cities and uh, they like want to see Tom Brady win or they want to see their team win. And half the country doesn't care. It has, has great ratings, 100 and something million watch. But this is like, and these countries, there's not a lot of other things going on on the sports world except for their team. So I'm, I can't even imagine the pressure of these guys and probably see some tension out there and, you know, tightness accordingly. Yeah, I think it's just wonderful to, to have the world watching incredibly talented people play a sport, right? And every country gets really into it. And I think this is new um, for us as Americans still. Um, but I, I love that it's existed. I've always loved it. I love the culture of it and how excited people get. Um, but yeah, it, it's a big stage and everybody's watching. Um, and there's becoming more and more soccer, I think, fans here in America. I, certainly my kids watch it in a different way than I did when I was younger. And I think that's a good thing. It's more international. It's bringing our world together. It's simple. It's easy to play. It doesn't, you don't need to get a, a set of golf clubs and a membership somewhere. You kick the ball around. That's yeah. right. Here's to the future of soccer. Did you say you were, you were a, a college player? athlete? I was. I played uh, basketball and softball at Stanford. You played basketball and softball. I did. I, um, strangely, I didn't actually intend to really play sports. 
um, when I got to when I got to college, when I got to Stanford, because I knew how difficult it was going to be uh, just to make it through academically, coming from the school and the place that I came from. Uh, so when I went in to talk to my academic advisor, I, I happened to mention, how am I going to pay for this thing, right? Um, I was so fearful that my parents at any moment would have me go back because it was a big stretch for them, right? A Mexican immigrant uh, father, a mom was in the schools, pretty conservative Mexican parents, and the idea of me going four hours away was quite scary, uh, especially because my dad like had this rule that if we went to prom, he had to talk to our dates for at least a half an hour. Oh, so this, so. Is, this is a cultural thing. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, mi novia no, no puede ir afuera para colegio. Right. Ella va por uh, uh, Sac State. She, she <laughs> lived at home with her sister, getting right. a four-year degree, and she, she could have gone to UCLA or wherever she wanted. So the stretch was like sort of this emotional, cultural thing too, where right. you're living in extended generation families and all these kind of things. That's right. And so it was but incredibly far away. are you saying there's away. a financial stretch too? Because so, I thought that these days, tell me the difference between yeah. when you went and now, because I, I thought there's big differences going huge, on. Huge differences. Oh, okay. Schools are making um, really great strides on helping kids through. Um, it wasn't quite like that um, when I went, it was $22,000, 22,000 a year, which was the biggest number I'd ever heard of. And, uh, you know, for me, I also just didn't understand that when you graduate, you have loans. Um, and I was so fearful that I was so blessed that my parents did let me go. And then I was so fearful at any moment they would make me come back. Um, and when I heard that I was going to have to have loans or that I was going to get the tuition and it was gonna, I was going to end up graduating with loans, I thought, if my parents find out about this, <laughs> then I'm going to have to somehow yeah. go back. Here's their daughter at Stanford about to get in big trouble because she pulled some loans. Oh, right, my goodness. Right, but I just – it was more naive, right? I didn't know. And, um, and so when I asked my academic advisor, well, how can I pay for this whole thing? And she sort of looked at me a little bit like, don't worry about it. You're going to be fine. You're going to have a Stanford degree. I was like, you don't understand. In order to get the Stanford degree, I have to figure yeah. this out. And sort of as she's talking to me, she says, you know, no one really gets out of college without loans. Um, but, you know, I mean, except for athletes. <laughs> and I said, great. Oh, I, where I'm do I go? I have, a, I have a good handle. Um, yeah. Send me to the number one basketball <laughs> program in the nation. Not only that, not only were they number one, but What are you, they, about 6'1", Amanda? <laughs> I think so, in my head. Yeah, no, I, I, um, I'm about 5'5 five, five on a good day. Okay, five, so five, she's, five, at, five, she's at Stanford, not <laughs> Eastern Baptist College of Minnesota. That's right. But you're, 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 I right. like your style. You're right. dreaming it up. You're, 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 the thoughts are processing or, when she talked about the athletes. Or you don't know any better, right? And um, so I thought, I can walk on and figure out a way to earn this. And so, um, so I show up on, uh, you know, the day where trials are supposed to be and I show up and nobody is in basketball gear, right? They're in like their running shoes. I have my high tops on, I'm ready to go. And the coach comes out and says, great, I'll meet you at the track. And at that point I sort of kind of look around and realize, all right, everyone's in running shoes. Now I get it. We're going to the track. We're not playing ball. And well, as it turns out, you go through conditioning uh. prior to being able to touch a ball. You can touch a ball on October 31st or by, oh, by NCAA law. But that means I have to actually make it through a conditioning program in order to even make the team. So for me, I'll never forget the moment where, you know, we're doing these sprints, right? These dashes in order to see how fast we are and like all the shoes line up, right? And, and I look down and you sort of kind of laugh now, but... 
not all of them look the same, right? One is not like the others. And so there I am doing my first day of the true sprints baller. in like my basketball shoes while everyone else has their running shoes on. But um, I made it. I made the team. And <laughs> then I what ended up... What It was, by the way, I was walking onto the defending national yeah, championship basketball I mean, team. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's unbelievable. So um, they, they needed a, a scrappy 5'5 five, five guard to, uh, to, to blend the roster out? Well, I'm not sure they needed it. Perhaps they just saw hustle and, um, and a desire to really just work hard. <sighs> and so Tara was wonderful. I ended up making that team. That's Van Devere. Um, She's a legendary right. coach. She yeah. is. She's fantastic. You know what I have to say about her? I sent her an email and she answered me in a very long and thoughtful manner. I thought it, my chances were just like my chances with you to sit down with a California gubernatorial candidate. So I'll never forget it, you yeah. know? Yeah. Oh, no, she's, um, and, and she was great. So she, so from there I ended up, um, I was still playing in a summer, in a summer, summer travel team, uh, for softball and, um, <laughs> And during the summer between my freshman and my sophomore year, the Stanford coach actually tried to recruit me, and my coach said, she's actually at Stanford. And so um, I played, this, my sophomore year, I played softball as well, and then by my junior year, I earned the scholarship, but I had to move over to softball. And um, wow. So I ended up getting that athletic scholarship. Um, I still had some loans for my first year, but um, I somehow figured out a way, and my parents didn't make me come back, so in the end... I ended up being a two-sport athlete there um, and loved it. And I can't imagine not having played college sports. So as it turns out, I'm really glad the path happened the way it did. Uh, so back to high school, you're in a small town, Woodlake? Woodlake. Yes, heard of it. Oh, excuse <laughs> me, that's the name of the boulevard in Los Angeles near where I grew up. Never heard of it, sorry, but it's a, a south of Fresno farming community. That's right. Rural. <laughs> Yep. So I can't imagine you were exposed to anything near the level of competition that you faced at Stanford. This travel team, was that kind of a larger Fresno area where you're playing against some other good teams? Or what did you do? Yeah, actually, it was a fantastic, we were called the Visalia Spirits, a fantastic, <laughs> um, young, scrappy team. And this is we basketball were, or softball? This is softball. Uh-huh. And we were in um, the National Fast Pitch League. Mm. And we ended up, you know, strangely, the Central Valley team ended up getting, I think it was six, fourth or sixth, I can't remember, in the National Fast Pitch World Series at, in Colorado. So to some degree, I had some exposure to this. Um, but that too, that story too was quite unusual because it was a bunch of young middle of nowhere, skinny kids who weren't supposed to beat the big teams in LA or Arizona. Um, but we did, we ended up ranking pretty high at a national, the national world series. So perhaps that was the planted seed that, uh, if you just put yourself out there and work really hard, it works out. Yeah. I'm still not getting the basketball part though. How you're (laughs) sitting in an academic counselor's office and, and, where was that? Were you were you a superstar in high school? Uh, no, so I was I I was pretty good in in, in high school. I was a, uh, you know I was a Central Section Athlete of the Year oh, and uh-huh. um, in, in and basketball. I was, yeah, I was uh-huh. MVP in all three sports: volleyball, Whew. basketball, and softball. But it was a small school, right? And we were in a small division, um, and I swam as well. So um, yeah, I, again, I when you grow up in middle of rural America, you don't really necessarily see the competition outside you. You know, you don't know. Uh, you can't do these things. Um, to, so, to some degree, I guess I just believed I could if I tried hard enough, um, and it worked out. So, what about the academic side? Because you, you, you're yeah. still, um, like, like you mentioned briefly, and I want to know how this works too. Where 
the, the concentration of academic talent or academic rigor is at the elite private schools around in the urban areas. And I know that colleges, especially Stanford, can do whatever they want. They don't have a scale to go by. I, I, I imagine they're trying for diversity and incredible stories like you, but it's likely that you didn't have the same rigor of AP and the, 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 the stuff that uh, some of these young students are being exposed to that are going off to the elite schools. Yeah, and that's um, a really quick lesson you learn the minute you walk into your first class. <laughs> um, for me, for me, it was my calc class where I walked in and, you know, we still had chalkboard. And I uh, looked at the board and I was like, all right, so I know Spanish, I know English, but I don't know that. <laughs> and after class, um, I, went up to the, I went up to the professor and I said, you know, I... I'm not exactly sure what you were teaching and I, I must be in the wrong class. Can you tell me where your intro class is? And, you know, confidently I said, can you tell me where your intro class is? And he looks at me and he says, um, this is our intro class. <sighs> and that's where it all comes crashing down. Right. And so that day he put me in touch with the TA. And so the TA gave me an entirely new book. And so every single time I went to, class, I would, before class, I would go to the TA, I would take a different, basically work out of a different book, go to class after class, go back to the TA, work out of that different book until we caught up. But I I won't forget sort of the walk from the TA's office, you know, with the big extra book in my backpack on the way to the dorm room and realizing I, I, I can't tell my parents this, right? I don't, can't, I don't want my roommate to know this. Um, and how incredibly lonely you feel at those moments. Um, but when you come from the place that I come from and you recognize that I had to prove something, not just for me, but for everyone back where I grew up, that I can't, I can't mess this one up. Um, that's really quite inspiring because it almost feels like you have a whole community helping you through. Um, but there's no doubt that that leap, um, and it really is a leap, that first year was so incredibly tough. So when people talk about, oh, I had such such a great time in college, it was wonderful. I, I can't quite say. Did that. you rush? Yeah, right. I can't yeah, quite I rushed from the tutor to the uh, the regular <laughs> class. In fact, I did every day, uh, and that was hard. Um, and so I really do. I have a special place in my heart for folks who are trying to make the big leaps because it is difficult. It is lonely, and you're not sure you're going to make it. <laughs> But, that's uh, our pull quote, by the way, for our audio engineer, Brian. That's beautiful. You know, there's, there is a special place for those people. And I imagine someone in admissions saw that potential in you and saw that diamond in the rough, what have you, just due to your location. And um, was there a lot of people in that, in that boat? I mean, were the athletes apparently not quite up to academic standard? Or was it, I mean, you, you said you felt lonely and isolated, but... You're saying everyone was dropping into that class and had better calculus training than you had? (laughs) You know, and some of this might just be that you're in your own space, right? So it could be, and I did peer counseling my junior year uh, at Stanford to try and help other kids who might have, or other students who might feel the way I did when I first arrived. Um, I don't know, right? I I only imagined that everyone else was doing so much better, right? Mm -hmm. I I mean, I'm certain that not everyone else had an extra book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that was the sort of validating point, but um, certainly places like Stanford, certainly trying to be an athlete, actually, and you you see this with a, quite a few athletes that go into college out of high school, and I've 
since had a lot of mentees who have tried to make that jump too from high school sports to college sports. That too is a difficult road when you're at the top of your game and then you realize, oh, I'm not even at the bottom. I have to like dig out of the hole. Um, I mean, those transitions are real. And um, I'm just lucky that I went through it. And part of my goal in whatever I do is to try and make that path a little bit easier for that next person, right? No, let me ask you, don't answer if you're uncomfortable, but did you get exposed to that other side of that coin that we hear so much about today, where we have this elite place, where we have people who have had great privilege and perhaps some helicoptering going on and perhaps some mindset forming that they're special and, and, and better than the, the run of the mill uh, on, in a world like that? I'm pleased to present B-Rad Grass-Fed Whey Protein Isolate Superfuel, the absolute highest quality all-natural protein supplement infused with creatine that delivers everything you need to optimize your appetite for fat loss, recover quickly from workouts, and build and maintain lean muscle mass, the single most important attribute for aging gracefully. Our protein comes directly from small family farms in America's dairy land of Wisconsin. It's cold processed and micro filtered for maximum bioavailability and digestibility. So please don't mess with the many cheap commodity protein supplements that are ineffective, inferior, less pure, and often contain junk sweeteners, especially the plant-based offerings that are vastly less bioavailable than the gold standard of protein supplements that's whey protein isolate. Whether you're in your peak athletic years looking to grow and recover or in the older age groups trying to delay aging and decline, whey and creatine are widely agreed to be the most critical and effective supplements to take for the rest of your life. You can easily stir the super fuel in water or make a delicious smoothie every day. I'm certain that you're going to love the pleasant, light, natural vanilla bean and cocoa bean flavors. So try some on Amazon today. It's a huge hit with dozens of five-star reviews. Or you can order direct from bradnutrition.com with our buy three, get one free, and make the super fuel a centerpiece of your daily routine. I'm so excited to introduce you to Paluva. This is a new zero-drop minimalist shoe with the distinctive five-toe design from my main man, Mark Sisson. Paluvas give you the most authentic barefoot-style experience, but with sufficient cushioning so you can use them for all manner of daily movement, especially walking and many other fitness and athletic activities. Paluvas are also incredibly stylish, so you get a barefoot shoe that you're not embarrassed to wear around in daily life. It's been so cool to see the popularity of minimalist shoes grow over the recent years, but Paluvas are a step ahead of every other zero-drop wide-box shoe because of the critical feature of individual five-toe articulation, a separate slot for each of your toes. This allows for correct dynamic movement of the foot through the walking or running stride, which is impossible when your toes are encased into a single box, even a wide box. Well, you might know that minimalist 
minimalist shoes have faced controversy in recent years for causing injuries from inappropriate use. So here is the big picture mission. We want to get you walking in Paluvas, living in your Paluvas, going barefoot in your home or other safe areas as often as possible. Go ahead and use your specialized cushiony running shoes or your basketball shoes, work boots, high heels, things that you want to wear when you want to wear them, but wear your Paluvas as much as possible to reawaken the natural functionality of the human foot to stand, walk, run, and perform. Do you want to try a pair? I'm certain that when you put them on and walk around, you are going to quickly realize that these are the most comfortable, natural shoes that you've ever worn. They are designed to feel like you're, quote, walking barefoot on a putting green. Please visit paluva.com, that's P-E-L-U-V-A, and use the code Brad podcast and get 10% off your first pair. Paluvas, let your feet be feet. You know, I have to be honest. I didn't, I didn't see that. Um, again, I was just trying to survive. Um, so to some degree, you know, you're just digging out of the hole as much as you can. Um, obviously I, when it came to the discussion of graduation, and I remember this is where um, where some of those, the, some of those discussions bubbled up, which was people were de- deciding, what are we going to do when we graduate? And for me, the message was so clear. I didn't have, I couldn't just do a, whatever I wanted to do. Right. I had to figure out a way to make money to pay off those loans for my first and my first and first and second year. And so I didn't, couldn't just be, um, a teacher that might not be able to have the salary to actually pay debt. Um, I wanted to make enough money so I can figure it out and become an adult. I think that part was a little bit real and where all of a sudden I I realized that some people didn't have those same questions, Mm. right? That truly this, you can be anything when you graduate idea. I'm going to go watch the World Cup, man. It's going to be awesome this summer. Yeah. Right. That just wasn't, um, that just wasn't part of my conversation. And that's where it came to. Um, real for me between me and my classmates where it's like some of us could really do whatever we wanted afterwards and some of us couldn't. Um, but heck, I was so blessed that I made it through, graduated with honors. Um, but I was just thrilled to have graduated that. In some ways, I didn't even pay attention much to that. It's only in retrospect as I look back on it that I recognize that there were different paths for some of us. So when you're, let's say, going back home and visiting or engaging with family and friends, did they understand the significance or did, did you feel differently now that you've been exposed to this new world where there really is never, never going back to your childhood and, and that perspective where you're, you're in that bubble, now you've broken out of the bubble, now you're returning or, or some, you went back to go teach in your hometown, right? I did. I did. I went right back into How the same that, classrooms. How about that, listeners? Come on. I know. It, it was um, fantastic. So throughout the course of my life, I've generally gone back home, whether it's to refuel, refuel, or um, just touch down again and remember where I came from. But I've actually gone back a couple of times. One was to go back and teach in my own high school. Um, When I ran for Congress, I went back. And in the governorship, um, a lot of my stories were about where I grew up, Um, whether it was talking to farm worker women Mm. or clean air and clean water and some of the places that are having the toughest time or whether it was talking to um, volunteer teachers who are actually trying to help incarcerated um, youth make sure mm. that they can reenter again. Um, 
I think that's a key part of why I'm so motivated and inspired to keep going and doing whatever I do to try and help is because I'm never that far from where I grew up. Um, and so, and I have to say, every single time I go back, I think I become a better person for it. Um, I learn a little bit more of the the different worlds I've been in. When I ran for Congress and recognizing um, that Washington, D.C. and policymakers are so far from folks at the door is an important understanding if you're going to stay in public service and that our role in public service is to make sure that we are actually on the front lines and connecting with the people that we're actually trying to build policy for. Um, so I have... I take and learn so much more every single time I go back. You know, that is kind of weird how that's set up because the congressman is heading off to D.C. and mixing with other congressmen. We had, when I lived in Placer County, we had John T. Doolittle, who had the highest ratings as the worst environmental. He had all kinds of records that he set, but he was in Congress for 22 years in his district. And so he was so entrenched in D.C., that it's hard to imagine. I don't even know how much time they spend back in district, but you have that natural disconnect where, I don't know, you're counting on someone to tell you what it's like back in your hometown. Or well, that's right. Your, and your, your district. district changes too, Oh yeah. right? I mean, demographics change. I mean, we just saw this last night in the New York race where uh, Crowley lost to a young 28-year-old uh, hustler, right, going door to door. Um, the demographics change the electric changes and the issues on the ground. Most importantly, the issues on the ground change. And that's the piece to me that um, was so prevalent, which is people didn't know who or what policies were affecting them. But that also means that politicians didn't quite know what or wasn't really affecting folks on the ground either, if that conversation was never happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I have, for me, I will continue to recognize that I grew up in this place that raised me to believe I can do anything and be anything, but it also raised somebody that's supposed to not forget where they came from, right? Um, okay, so then we have, a, a, it brings up a question like, here, you, you did this. You had that support from your hometown, your family. Um, why don't we see this pattern more, 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 more commonly? Why don't we see four kids from Woodlake every year going into Ivy League or what have you? Well, that's interesting. Um, times, times a million, obviously. That's right. Because when I ran, um, it had been 17 years, 16 years at that point that anyone had made that leap from Woodlake to Stanford. Uh, and I happened to be speaking at a fundraiser, small community kind of fundraiser. Um, and a young junior, Latina young junior, heard me speak, uh, heard me talk about the fact that you know, you can make it, actually can see it, right? Can see someone who's done it. And she applied and got in. And the, the reason I mention that is because you got to see it to believe it. You got to know it exists. You got to know someone like you can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and have a visceral experience with that person right. rather than a magazine article. That's right. Yeah. And to see that you're not that different. I mean, right? the YouTube video was great. Your YouTube candidate video, but to have you come back and engage with the girl in person, that's, that's got to be a yeah. lifelong, lasting impression. I read an article that said um, kids, if they're exposed to a college campus and you actually walk around on the campus, they can see themselves there, but it's really hard to see themselves there without that physical experience. So I remember reading that article and I took my son and like, I, I took <laughs> note, we, we visited like 27 college campuses. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. And then he, um, he decided he wanted to go to UCLA when he was like 11 years old and he got into high school and uh, he applied to one school only. He just said none, the other 27 never mattered to him. It was just, you know, yeah. but the exposure and, and that, that part of, so, so congratulations That's to that right. girl. But generally, what did you have that other people, what did you have that really had going for you? Was it innate? Were you born to be this person? Uh, you know, that kind of thing. No, um, no. And in fact, I, I probably link it back to really that decision to first leave. And I had a lot of people that said, um, that said, maybe it's a little bit too hard for you, or maybe you should go to local college and then go, right? Yeah, these like and high school of, counselors? Yeah, or, counselors. Yeah. And I mean, well-meaning, right? Yeah, I mean, sure, totally well-meaning. Sure. Um, but I had one teacher who pulled me aside and said, you know, this isn't about you, but it's about this community and that somebody like them can succeed at a place like that. What's the teacher's name? Ah, Dr. Shaw. Right, He's my Dr. economics Shaw. teacher. And um, it, it was, it, for me, hearing that was real, right? Hearing that meant something. Um, and that's really been the motivation that continues to carry me to say, why do you do these things? And I do believe that someone's got to step up and be that, right? Um, why not someone's got to try to do that. And, uh, and you know what? It's pretty powerful when you know you have an entire community to behind, it, behind you. And so one of the things I often say to young folks um, is we've got to quit being um, blessed to be somewhere and recognize that it's our responsibility to go. Um, if we can just do that, and I think at 17, for one reason or another, at 17, I put that backpack on and sort of felt like this is what I'm supposed to do. Um, I never have quite taken it off, but I believe more kids should have it, right? I do. I, 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 uh, I, while I want my kids to have fun and enjoy it, they also have responsibilities in life. They have been blessed to have the life that they have. And they better go and, you know, make sure that they're sticking up for kids when they're being bullied, mm. right? Um, and I think that lesson can't start soon enough. Mm -hmm. Especially nowadays when we have the, the job hopping and all these things that are so foreign concept to us or, you know, the, the, the era of entitlement seems to be a, a real deal where, you know, there's so much privilege around or there's ways that the parents are cushioning all the blows so that they don't have to experience any failure or struggle. And then what do we end up with is someone who has a, does not have anything that you just described. That's right. Yeah. And I think there's something, I mean, we try, <laughs> my four-year-old at one point, um, we're in line at the store and, and my three-year-old or my two-year-old at the time is like crying and wanting to <laughs> move faster in the line because, you know, we have his candy or whatever in the basket at the shopping cart. And my my four year old or five year old at the time turns around and goes delayed gratification tea, Whoa. and that's a word that my husband and I sort of joke around with that we taught them delayed gratification as early as we possibly could, right? So at least we could put a name on what it is. Like yes, you feel that you want it, but that delayed gratification is something that we all have to practice, right? <laughs> Including me. Right? It, sometimes you're not, it's not going to happen in a year or two years. Sometimes we do have to wait for policy two, three years down the road. But man, we can't stop trying and we can't, we can't quiet that energy, but at least we know it and we can name it and it's okay that we feel it. Um, and so that's been a big key lesson for my husband and I is that we really try and teach our kids now delayed gratification um, and we're hopeful 
that that'll at least impart some lessons about who we uh, are as people. You you know that famous marshmallow experiment? Of course. I, I read it last night for the first time. It's incredible. Uh, but they, they, they put a kid in a room, they put yeah. one marshmallow and they say, if you can wait till I come back, you get two, right? That was the baseline for the thing. But then the, the follow-up was the studies showing that the kids who could make it had vastly over the rest of their lifetime or whatever the, the course of the study, better grades, better, you know, self-esteem, all these different things, just from just from being able to delay gratification, which today is harder than ever, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and, and really it's about coming up with strategies that you do in order to delay that, right? And then feeling really proud when you finally make it, right? Which is, uh, which is why- Don't forget that part, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. feels it feels great because you earned it, right? Yeah. And you can't. And I don't believe you can um, feign or fake or teach that sense of earning without earning it. <laughs> wow, you could talk all you want, especially right. as a parent. Yeah, nothing's nothing's gonna stick. Yeah. yeah, and you know, I could see it in my kids when you know they. I sort of just you know gave it to them versus no, you're gonna have to earn it. You can see their sense of you know responsibility of that win, right? And um, hopefully we do that a lot more. Let's hope so. Okay, let's keep going with this journey. So you went back and taught for a little bit and then uh, you found your way to Harvard eventually. I did. And um, and uh, Harvard was interesting, right? So I once again, you're applying out of this Woodlake, <laughs> California, nine, three, whatever, zero, nine, here comes up, uh, dear Harvard. <laughs> oh my goodness. And this is for business school? It was. It was for business school. Yeah. Um, what were you thinking at that time uh, since you're in a classroom teaching kids? Well, again, a little bit leap. interesting because I the was- Amanda Leap is coming. It, I was living at home um, when I applied and my, my parents kind of goes back to the, the world of your parents. Um, so I was at home and I was applying um, to Harvard Business School and my dad actually was a little upset because- why would you go and incur more debt? Um, you've already graduated from Stanford. Why do you need this other thing? So is um, this uh, lack of understanding of the meal ticket part of the equation? Or was it just sort of a, a, a his, his viewpoint of being more conservative with your future or something? No, I, it's not knowing, right? right it's not, not knowing, knowing how important a master's is. Yeah. Um, it's not knowing, I would even say this as a woman and a woman of color, um, having an MBA mattered, mm-hmm. right? It um, it was really important to validate your skills and for credibility, you need to have I, these things that people understand, right? Yeah, yeah. While my dad didn't, the rest of the world did. Right, and did you try to explain that to him? <laughs> I did, I did. Um, but to some degree, you, you know, I guess I learned my own instincts of, all right, that worked out okay at Stanford. This might just work out okay at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, of course, they're incredibly proud. And, um, and I'm sure, you know, those conversations, I mean, he was right about I could have done a lot with my mm-hmm. um, Stanford degree, no doubt. Um, so, you know, you kind of take it all in and you decide. And credit to my parents who really did say, okay, if that's a road you want to go, Great. How can I help you? Right. How can we make sure that you're going to be successful in doing uh, let's that? Let's see. The tuition on this this time around is blank, blank, blank. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, tough one. No sports either. You can't be no on the, You can't be on the Harvard That's Business right. Basketball Team. It's why I still have student loans, as does my husband from Harvard Business School, because uh, you know graduate school is expensive. Yeah. Um, 
but you know, it's one of those things that was incredibly important to do. Right. I mean, the whole new world for me, I learned an entirely new world, uh, going to business school. Obviously I met my husband there, um, uh, the son of a factory worker. And so all of that was important. It was also understanding leadership at that kind of level. Um, and of course, you know, we met some incredible friends and people, but it did really expand me in a much more international way as well, right? Harvard, Stanford really introduced me to the the, the country. Mm-hmm. I would say Harvard introduced me to the world, um, particularly because it was my time in life, but you also go to school and have classmates who are all, from all around the world. A high percentage of the, 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 the student body in that graduate program is international? They... Um, more than in my classes mm-hmm. here, right? So you're in school with, um, you're in class of 900 students and you go to class for an entire year with 90 of them. Mm. And you do hear about the different perspectives of where people live. I think the other piece is you are going to school with sons and daughters of ambassadors and you are, so nothing feels, you know, you become, that kind of language becomes comfortable, right? When people say, uh, when I graduated from Stanford and somebody said, well, I was applying for a job at one of the financial institutions and they said, but Amanda, you, what are you going to talk to your clients about if you don't come from that world? And I remember being so offended by it. Um, but what I will say is when I went to Harvard, I realized that it was a language that I was learning. It's not just about what I was learning in the classroom, but it was a language of different countries and the history of different countries and the families and it is a different language. I mean, I'm still offended by the the financial services conversation. <laughs> um, it's kind of it's, it's it's going out the way of like if you get a tattoo, you'll never get a job, and now it's like if you don't have any tattoos, people are going to think you're weird today. Right. You know, it's no. the opposite. So no. enough of that stuff. Jeez. But you know what? I will say this. I love as I enter new arenas. Yeah. When I went to Goldman, I asked you know all the execs. Okay, so you what graduated and went to Goldman. Yeah. What when kind of I was job at was Stanford, um, I worked at in the financial oh. institution right out of. Stanford. Oh, okay. When I said some kids got to do whatever right, they wanted, right. other kids had to off. figure out how to right. pay loans. Yeah. Um, when I went there, the first thing I did was ask executives, what, what books did you read? Wow. And partly it was because I wanted to be able to have conversations with people, recognizing that the things I might know or talk about, they probably didn't watch El Gordo y la Flaca, right? Well, growing up, they probably didn't watch or did they didn't they weren't on a Mexican dancing stage when they were young, right? I mean, there's some, I recognize there are conversations that I was going to have to learn how to have. Um, and ¿Qué, so, es, ¿Qué es el gordo y la flaca? Porque mi amor uh, llámame flaquito. ¿Es, <laughs> es simpático o muy malo? Skinny. Oh, flaquito. Okay, yeah, okay. But there's a show, there's a variety show. A uh, very really? popular variety show. Of course. Check that yeah. thing out, man. Uh, Hillary Clinton was on it during the presidential campaign, she was. actually. Did, yes. you, did you pull some strings to get make that happen? I was incredibly scared to put her on there because it's a variety show, right? And on a presidential campaign, everything is perfectly timed, right? And you know exactly what's going to happen before anything happens. Well, now I'm on a leading Spanish-speaking, uh, you know, variety show. It's live, oh. and I'm not sure everything's going to go as expected, right? Especially, especially because um, it's supposed to be. They're supposed to have surprises within the variety show. <laughs> so you can imagine I'm sweating while she's on the variety show. But I mean, that's what it's all about, right? Is introducing cultures to different things and seeing. 
um, people be human and connect in a real way. And so wow. I think it was one of the best, um, one of her best of appearances. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I want to tell you about Schwank Grills. This is a revolutionary portable gas infrared grill that uses the exact same heating technology as the world's best steakhouses. You heat up to 1500 degrees Fahrenheit to grill the juiciest steak you've ever tasted in as little as three minutes. Can you believe it? That's right. You do not have to go to those crowded, noisy, super overpriced steakhouses anymore when you have the same technology in your backyard. And the Schwank portable infrared grill is not just for steak. You can make chicken wings, hamburgers, seafood, lobster, vegetables. I make salmon in three minutes. They even have a pizza stone accessory. I want you to visit their very informative and mouth-watering website at schwankgrills.com. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-K. Everything you cook, faster, juicier. The speed is so important, so convenient. Uh, there's a drip tray on the bottom, so you let the juices drip down. I love the bison burger, the venison burgers. That's my game. And then you can add a mixture of butter, spices, whatever you want, into the tray. Pour it back onto your meat or your salmon for a huge improvement in flavor. Are you getting hungry? I am. <laughs> Let's go to schwankgrills.com, S-C-H-W-A-N-K, grills.com, and up your home cooking game. This is a one-of-a-kind grill. I have a great discount code for you, of course. It's BRAD150 to save $150 off your purchase of a Schwank grill. I'm so excited to introduce you to Paluva. This is a new zero-drop minimalist shoe with the distinctive five-toe design from my main man, Mark Sisson. Paluvas give you the most authentic barefoot-style experience, but with sufficient cushioning so you can use them for all manner of daily movement, especially walking and many other fitness and athletic activities. Paluvas are also incredibly stylish, so you get a barefoot shoe that you're not embarrassed to wear around in daily life. It's been so cool to see the popularity of minimalist shoes grow over the recent years, but Paluvas are a step ahead of every other zero-drop wide-box shoe because of the critical feature of individual five-toe articulation, a separate slot for each of your toes. This allows for correct dynamic movement of the foot through the walking or running stride, which is impossible when your toes are encased into a single box, even a wide box. Well, you might know that minimalist shoes have faced controversy in recent years for causing injuries from inappropriate use. So here is the big picture mission. We want to get you walking in paluvas, living in your paluvas, going barefoot in your home or other safe areas as often as possible. Go ahead and use your specialized cushiony running shoes or your basketball shoes, work boots, high heels, things that you want to wear when you want to wear them, but wear your Paluvas as much as possible to reawaken the natural functionality of the human foot to stand, walk, run, and perform. Do you want to try a pair? I'm certain that when you put them on and walk around, you are going to quickly realize that these are the most comfortable, natural shoes that you've ever worn. They are designed to feel like you're, quote, walking barefoot on a putting green. 
please visit paluva.com. That's P-E-L-U-V-A and use the code Brad Podcast and get 10% off your first pair. Paluvas, let your feet be feet. Uh, then you decided like the, the politics public service was calling you. You and know, now we're we're working our way through the story yeah. here, and you you dropped the Hillary Clinton thing. You were sorry about that. Um, you know, we skip ahead, and you were the what, what was your role? National the, political director. National political director for presidential campaign. Yeah, that seems um, that that seems like a, a pretty plum. How did you get that? Um, That's huge. by luck. Um, I I mean I had I'd worked in the Senate for. Nine years, I was mm. the first Latina chief of staff in the United States Senate. That was for Feinstein? or That was for Debbie Stabenow of Michigan. Okay. Um, wow. and so you're allowed to go work for some. You, you don't have to be uh, from Michigan. You can just get that gig. And So it's interesting. I, I was working for Feinstein, and um, Michigan was in a tough time when I moved over. We could see that the auto industry was mm. beginning to weaken, um, and economically, the Midwest was really, you know, just to some degree still is, but it wasn't quite as bad back then because their main industry was beginning to weaken. And there weren't a lot of MBAs running around on the Democratic side, particularly Harvard MBAs running around at that time. And so um, Senator Sabanow was looking for somebody who can lead the economic portfolio. Mm. Um, she was on the banking committee um, and really had a lot more of that kind of portfolio. And so... I heard about it and I put my name in for that. And it was pretty exciting to really be at a place where we were trying to figure out how do you maintain um, an auto industry in this country? Wow. So I moved over because I thought I could make a difference and I could help. Yeah. Um, and that my skills matched the need for her at the time. And man, I enjoyed working for her. She is an incredible woman. And I believe that. Um, when you have more people like Senator Stabenow, who middle-class woman, um, didn't grow up in a political family, when her voice is at the table, it makes a difference for what kind of policy we have in our country. And she made me believe that I wanted to help her have a bigger voice, as much of a voice as possible, because it made me believe in our public institutions even more. Wow. So, so when you're in that role, now there's an opportunity to go on a presidential campaign? So I got to know a lot of people in that role. I was on a lot of the chiefs, um, sort of the chiefs lists, but also just the events that they had. So I, um, I suppose I made a little bit of a reputation. I, I, um, yeah, I, I got to know quite a few folks. And so after I, um, after my, my election didn't work out, um, Hillary called and said, or her, the team called and said, would you be interested in this national political role? Um, and for me, I got to really know. What, they just saw you on Gordo y Flacca? No, I mean, when I ran for, when I ran for um, Congress, I got to know a lot of the House members oh. as well. I got to know the DCCC, you know, a lot of Democratic Party leaders a little bit more. Did you serve on the Congress? You, you ran? When I then- ran for, when I ran, so after being chief of staff, I ran, I moved back home and I ran for Congress. Yes. In running for Congress, you get to know a lot more of the members. Here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll let that. I know that's background noise. That's Diana. She. Oh, hi, Diana. Um, so, and Diana, Diana helps us. She picks up our kids, and oh. she's actually from the Central Valley too. Wow. Um, anyway, um, so I got to know quite a few folks, and when I ran, when you run, you get to know the members a lot more. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I, you know, I think 
I, I think some of it is there weren't a lot of Senate side people kind of taking the path that I had, which is being both on the policy side and on the pol- politics side. And um, so, you know, and there was, and our race got a lot of attention during that period of time. And so I got to know, um, you know, Vice President Biden came to my district, Secretary Vilsack came to my district. I spoke at one of the Obama events um, and, and a Hillary event as well when I ran. And Killed so, it, I guess. Um, I think I did okay. I guess so. <laughs> so, but when she asked me, I wasn't exactly sure I was going to go. I mean, right, we were living in rural America. I was back where my family, I, I mm. wanted to build something in the Central Valley. Mm. Um, but the idea of being able to elect the first female president um, and trying to help that effort was really important. Okay, so you're, you're making a name for yourself, as they say in politics, and then you got, you got plucked by the, by the campaign. Uh, but you were a little reluctant. I, I was, um, and I think I've always been a little bit, you know, I've always kind of gone scalability local, right? And mm. I've kind of bounced back and forth, and I wasn't sure I was ready um, to do it. But the part for me that was real um, is running, you see your polling numbers, right? And it was Amanda versus David. That's all people knew. And all of a sudden I was behind. And it really bugged me that just by being you know, just by being female, somehow I was working out of a hole in the Central Valley. And so I kind of went on this mission when I was running to try and figure it out, right? I loved conversation at the doors. I loved getting to know the why. And particularly when people would say either they're not voting or they're not voting for me, I really kind of wanted to know why. And I'll never forget a conversation I had with um, what was my base voter, older um, Latina woman, um, who said, you know, Mija, you're great, but I'm going to vote for him, right? And I said, Por qué, right? And we had this conversation, por qué, por qué él? You know? And she says, because Miha, you're just like us. And don't you think we need somebody like them? So says his to flyer. To be in, this, yeah. in that role, right? And what, what struck me is that, what was hard is that when she looked in the mirror, she didn't think, right? That what was looking back at her could make that difference. And what it left me with is that we've got to change the image of leadership. And that's what I wanted to do in staying in the Valley. And I knew it was going to take a really long time to start to make leadership look a little different, right? Because I would have been the first woman. I would have also been the first person of color north of LA to win a seat to Congress. First Latina north of LA, not person of color, Latina north of LA. And I thought it's going to take some time, but we've got to start changing this image of leadership. The reason why I joined the Hillary campaign is because I knew in one cycle, Mm we could change the image of leadership. Mm-hmm. And we did. I mean, the, the good news is we did. I think, you know, I did a speech in Mexico City at International Women's Day, and I said, I don't want anyone for a second to believe something wasn't accomplished because for the first time ever, people believe a woman can be commander-in-chief. For the first time ever, a woman got more votes, mm-hmm. three million more votes than a man. For mm-hmm. the first time ever, we've seen what a female leadership can look like. Mm-hmm. And I think that is huge, is enormous. Um, obviously, it led to the largest at that point um, when I gave the speech, the largest march led by women, right? Oh, Those right. are the things that we have now crossed today. Mm-hmm. And um, I am still incredibly proud to have been part of that because that is seeding a future. Um, that I was hoping we would seed by changing the image of leadership. 
in a short time, like you said, it's right. here. It's not, it's not going away. It's here. You see it more and more, right? You see the yeah. marches, you see women running, you see people unexpectedly doing things they never imagined they'd do, but they're doing it in their everyday lives now, right? They're doing it in work, calling out sexual misconduct, calling mm. out um, some of the things that have held people like them back. I think that's a beautiful thing. Are we ready for the next female candidate to step up and, and it's kind of be gender indifferent to the actual message and the, the, the quality of the candidate? Because like, like you described, that, that initial handicap out of the gate, is that gone or are we still going to have to work through some of that? I think... I- I don't think we. Uh, I don't think one election cycle also gets you there, right? It has to be repeated wins. Um, mm. We have to see more of this. What's called the year of the woman. We have to see more of that happen at all levels, right? It has to be so set that we're not calling it the year of the woman, right? Right. <laughs> um, and so, and I think we've seeded it that it's not going away, um, but we can't let it reverse. How did the campaign go? Um. I'm in credit. You're talking about my governor's campaign. Uh, no, no. Hillary's talking about Hillary's campaign. campaign. Yeah. Um, the campaign was hard, right? I think. Is well, it, I mean, I, I imagine it's physically brutally hard to go at that pace. Is oh, that I right? had no idea. Uh, oftentimes I would wake up and not know what time I, what time it was or what, where I was. You must well be a rock star. Um, it, it was difficult, right? Um, the thing that kept me in many ways grounded is I knew uh, I, I counted my days as when I was going to be able to see my kids again, right? When I would touch back home. Uh, I learned that two weeks is too much. And so uh, I had to make sure that whatever trip I was on or how we cobbled together the trip that I would be home so I could at least see them before, you know, I crossed the two-week two march. Um, you were able to do but, that? You somehow manage that by just popping an extra flight in that's and, right. and then catching up to the bus at the next... That's, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, you, I mean, it's brutal. amazing. It's amazing what what flights you can do, and it's amazing how fast you can get through an airport when you're on that final day before you're going to see your you know husband and kids. But um, you know, I think what was really interesting about the campaign for me is what I when I ran, I got to see this disconnection, as I mentioned before, right? That people at the doors were so different than the political power or the leaders in our world, and I thought that was just something in rural America where I grew up. Over the course of 2016, I realized that it wasn't just in Woodlake, California or in Tulare County, but that disconnection seemed to be occurring all across the country. Um, That disconnection coupled with, we're in a little bit of a generational shift right now too. And the confluence of all of that coming together um, made it hard because we were really trying to bridge this world of you know millennials coming to their own voice and um, a disconnection with rural America, but really, really with just people at the door. Um, I often talk about 2016 being the year where politics went direct to consumer or mm. direct to electorate for the first time. Before it would be, you'd have to get that endorsement from that big organization or that big organization, and then you'd win an election. But 2016 was direct to consumer, right? Um, With a very disruptive technology where you could Mm. do that, right? Mm -hmm. Twitter was used in an entirely different way. Online was used in an entirely different way where you can not only go direct to consumer, but you can actually segment as well. Um, So 
in retrospect, <laughs> in retrospect, in some ways, it's almost even more tiring thinking about all the different things that were happening and then layer on what we don't know about yet, what we don't know about what was happening in the foreign intelligence world um, or by foreign agents. Um, so it was, it was hard. It was hard. Um, I was really proud to have been part of the Flint national mm-hmm. awareness when I went there. Um, it, it hadn't been on our radar yet. And so when I met with the mayor and sat down with her and learned that um, the best thing you can do in politics is be there mm-hmm. because you learn it in a different way than just watching it or reading the policy about it, but walking in other people's shoes, sitting there and realizing I just took a shower and I'm not sure what I showered in. And to imagine that I leave the next day, but all these other kids and all these other families stay there um, and can't leave. I don't think the weight of that can be learned um, at an arm's distance. I think you need to be there. Um, I'm feeling a little itchy just from the story, but I, I agree. It's, you know, there's nothing like it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, and it, unfortunately, like when I, when I, Consider this concept when it comes to health, you know, the people in the the ketogenic diet space, a lot of them are coming there from a cancer diagnosis or severe health problems that couldn't be cured by mainstream medicine. And it's too bad that has to be their path, but it's like, it's hard for us to wake up. We're busy. You know, we got, we got stuff to do every day and we're not, we're not uh, broken up by the, the, the problems in Flint until they're brought to our attention right. or we, we feel it in some way. That's right. So you're yeah. sitting there and you know, the waitress gives you a glass of water, right? And then you wonder if it's okay, right? Um, Not a great feeling. No, and, I, and I, think, I think that's where we need public servants, politicians to be a lot more. And um, you know, given everything happening at the border right now, I think, I think that the fact that people are going there to see it, to see the faces, that matters. <laughs> Because you can't govern a world you don't know and never seen. What was your quote on that? That you you you've, it transcended politics or something? What's going on? I mean, we have this you know the the constant conflict between liberal, conservative, whatever. But now have we gone something that's above and beyond for maybe the first time in a long time with racism sure. and human rights and things like that that are. Um, Coming into coming into daily view, I do I do think that right now in this transition that we're in generationally, um, in this highly polarized um, in this highly polarized political arena we're in right now, I do think we're going to get back to the specific issues again, mm. um, where we can build coalitions around um, really important pieces, right? That just the very basic level. Mothers, fathers should not be separated from their kids, right? Just at the very basic level, um, when kids are in school, they should be safe, right? And I think, I, I, my hope is, because <laughs> I'm an eternal optimist, my hope is, is that we will be stronger in those values than in um, our party. Um, and I think that's an important piece to get us on the right track. Um, and I, and I see it going there, or at least my silver lining, what I try to see or seek is those moments where you can see that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I hope what we do is we don't think about it. Oh, I'm crossing over a political line for today, but I hope we think about it as no, I'm actually joining a common value. Right. And let's move from there. Right. Very well said. I like that. Yeah. I just heard Deepak Chopra talk about, 
the, the things on his mind and he's very troubled by the uh, collective uh, dysfunction of society and the, uh, these, these other things. And he, he actually put a time clock on us that if we continue down our current path, he, he gives us like 30 years until we become extinct through um, all, the, all the mistakes we're making. But then the next breath, he said, uh, as the collective consciousness grows, as we realize we're kind of screwed with this climate change thing uh, and, and so forth and whatever else is going on that's really hitting the, hitting the consciousness, says the collective consciousness will grow and we'll, we'll turn everything around, we'll write things. So that's, yeah, and the, that's I, the optimist part. It is, it is. Um, 30 years is, an, is a pessimist <laughs> part. It might be a realist part, but we don't want to go there without the other side of it. Like, okay, let's wake up. And you know what, what's really, it's, it's fascinating because I've, in my political career, I, I was able to go to other countries on behalf of the United States Senate, right? Um, mm. And, you know, you'd imagine that when you're talking to world leaders, you know, they're talking, they're talking, you'd wonder what their questions are. And they always revolved around one thing. It wasn't about our movies. It wasn't about our innovative products. It was how did our democracy, how did our public institutions survive moments of controversy? That's what they wanted to know. How did our public institutions survive moments of controversy? And that to me uh, is a little bit scary right now, right? Because we're testing it, right? We're testing the justice system. It's why, it's why after the election, I was so honored to be chief of operations at the California Department of Justice. Mm. Because I do believe that our public institutions must sustain as they always have. Um, and so while we're getting our act together as a, as a conscious, as, as, as he would have said, um, what are our public institutions and how are they surviving? Um, because that is what makes us different um, than countries around the world that have fallen. So these little uh, gigs are coming. <laughs> you must have a good agent or someone's you know, looking out for you. All of a sudden you're running this huge uh, DOJ in, in California. And then tell me about, tell me how that went. And then when this, this, uh, this pot started boiling about the, the gubernatorial race. Yeah. So um, I, I, you know, I, I've always loved public service, so it was a, it was a real honor to work with so many incredible people at, at the California Department of Justice. My job was to really um, help the Attorney General set it up for um, what we knew in the short term was going to be an onslaught of um, really attacking our underlying laws and values here in California. Um, and so in the short term, how do we reorganize to um, to really be ready for that? And then second... How do we put in place a operations that is ready for the next generation, right? That's ready for the next 10 years. Everything from um, before I got there, you had to send in your resume. Um, Pretty tough to get young people to come to DOJ if you've got to send in the resume, right? And we weren't on Facebook and LinkedIn and some of these other like social platforms that really are hitting our younger generation. Um, So we changed some of those things, right? Um, in order to make sure that we were setting ourselves up for the future. Um, watching though the gubernatorial race and recognizing that some major conversations were being left out um, was hard for me to watch from the sidelines. Um, the Me Too movement, the women's movement wasn't really being discussed. Mm-hmm. A new generation and what are we doing to inspire an entire new generation? Um, the what, fact that what we were- What were they going for instead? The, the the fights usual. were over the fights were over who used their political power to get more money at the time, <sighs> right? Um, as opposed to 
really trying to steer public service in a new direction, which is what I believe we need right now. Um, and I felt like I couldn't just sit on the sidelines and watch that. I wanted to do everything I could to, you know, I often say there's nothing worse than being ignored, right? Nothing worse than being ignored. And the idea that this women's movement was completely ignored, the idea that we're in the most progressive state uh, or call ourselves the most progressive state in the union and the Central Valley was largely not discussed. The fact that we have some of the poorest areas uh, and underserved areas in this state and in this country um, was com- was largely left out. Um, you can't sit back if you can do something about it. And so I felt it was important to pull the conversation to make sure that we were truly empowering people um, to be a part of that conversation, to be a part of the dialogue um, and move policy into that. Because if we're not talking about it, we're not governing for it either. So I think some people uh, looking from the outside might not understand that point where you're trying to, you, you, you don't have a good chance of winning the election when you jump in, but you're having a chance to have a profound influence on the conversation and where where the where the leading candidates are going to have to they're going to have to listen if you're if you're out there uh, calling attention. I, I never thought about that myself. That the, the Me Too stuff wasn't was just ignored. Yeah, there's too many other things to talk about. That's and, right. And so, I mean, here's a moment, right? Here's a moment. Good time. Yeah. And I just um, and so it was important to be. But when I jumped in, um, when I when I jumped in, there was still a huge undecided population. Right, so it wasn't that it was an impossible um, path. It wasn't an impossible path. What it would require, though, is a chance on the debate stage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you get that chance by putting up some good poll numbers, or how do you get that spot on the debate stage? By having a lot of money. <laughs> so, as one of the uh, as one of the producers said. Um, well, I mean, if you were, if you came from a different family, you know, or, oh, I mean, or literally name mean, ID, um, it, it's a little bit of name uh, ID. Oh, mercy. You know, I think, I think it's, it's, do you have, um, enough money to be a player within, um, within the gubernatorial race? Right. And one way you show that is by, you know, having a ton of money, right. And saying, well, I'm going to put all this on air. And so that's how. We'll get there. Um, it's not about qualifications. It's not about would you be one of, you know, could you govern? What have you done to be able to pr- prove you can govern? What if you have like variety um, show style talents? <laughs> you can do the Mexican dancing. You're, you're training your children <laughs> That'd very well. That'd be fantastic. That'd be fun. Yeah. I mean, it's about time for a change in these boring debates, these talking points. and the. I, I agree. When I ran for Congress, I wanted to, ha- I wanted to have a, Let's go. a Let's horse have a dance game over off. it. Yeah, yeah. I, I was willing to do some basketball. I mean, I, I've got a lot of variety here. I can do some basketball. I can throw a football. I could, you know, I can do some Mexican dancing. Um, the only thing I can't quite do is sing. I'm, I'm a horrible singer. Um, my kids are all right. The, it skipped the generation. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's the part that I needed some break and um, obviously didn't get that. But um, nonetheless, I, at the very least, what I knew I would do is pull a conversation that wasn't being had. Um, and, wasn't going to be had because nobody wanted to talk about that stuff. But I think at this moment we are in being on the right side of history is making sure that we are talking about empowerment at all levels. Um, 
and not ignoring those kinds of things, not ignoring a Me Too movement when there was a march just five days before a debate and nobody asked a question about it. Um, when I, my How many first, people debated? Five. Five, sometimes four, sometimes five. Um, again, this is a top two primary as well. So if people just get exposure, it changes the numbers, period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen that over the course. I've, I've read, watched, saw the data over the course of um, other elections, major, major country elections. Getting on that debate stage does matter, particularly in primaries. Um, so, yeah. I'm shocked to hear that it's not a linear, uh, that there's not some poll number that you can just get up to a certain ranking and, and get a spot. There is, but then they have to do it, right? Your name has to be included in it. And right now we're in a shifting of the polls where- Oh, your name has to be included in preliminary that's right. poll. So they have yeah. to actually ask you about it, right? Um. So polling is going through its own, I mean, as everyone has probably seen and noticed, polling is going through its own understanding of how do they actually measure today. Um, Again, some of the most recent, we're seeing that some of the most recent elections in Virginia and et cetera, people won that weren't expected. New York Uh last night, people won that weren't expected to. Um, So, and, and unfortunately, the way the system and the establishment of it, status quo of it works, is one feeds the other, right? So the the folks who were doing the debate say, well, you're not in a poll. And for some of them, it was just being in a poll. It wasn't a number. You're not in a poll. And then the pollsters would say, well, you're not on the debate stage. So you're sort of stuck. Um, I think there's probably some truth to some folks who said you should have jumped in earlier. That might mm-hmm. be true. Mm-hmm. That might be true that we could have moved things had I had a little bit more time. Um, it would have been cool to do like a YouTube video of you answering every question in the debate and like patching together the <laughs> the actual debate and then just cutting in like one of those you know one oh, of those bloopers on YouTube. But it, it'd be pretty pretty powerful because like yeah. now you can actually do stuff like that. Yeah. And it's sort of funny, but it's like what else can you do if you're on the sidelines except be out on the right. in the parking lot? You know? Wow. That's yeah. a tough tough grind though. Yeah. Okay, so you didn't get in the debate, but yeah. you you did a full on campaign. How did it go? Yeah. You know, I feel fantastic about what we were able to do and the folks that we were able to inspire and the stories we were able to tell. Um, And my hope is that we have seeded all kinds of future folks who believe they can be at the highest tables in our political leadership discussion, that their issues matter, um, that, um, you know, they saw they can do it. That leadership doesn't look like... uh, that leadership, I should say it this way, that leadership can look a lot of different ways and that you can run campaigns a lot of different ways and make an impact. Um, and that's my hope is that people see that. Um, but I don't know what's next. Oh, I don't know what's next. I, um, what are you doing now? Catching your breath here in, uh, in, in Silicon Valley? You're, you're back so, within a stone's throw of your, your old school I there. I am. I get to see my kids. Um, and, you know, being in a, you know, being real, right. I'm in a relationship where, um, my husband and I both, uh, have our own careers and to some degree, you know, he wasn't able to take his work careers as much as I, or his work trips as much as I was. And, uh, uh we've talked a lot about this. It's time for him to do all the conferences and everything that he mm. needs to do. Mm. Um, because I can be a little bit more reliable and home and as we call it first parent. <laughs> so, um, but you know, I never really took time to think about after my my campaign, 
um, when I got a call from Hillary or after the Hillary campaign and the attorney general called. Did you really get a call? Like that's how this, she just called From you the campaign, day. from yeah. the campaign. Yeah. I got a call from the campaign. Um, you know, that you have to recruit, right? So the campaign <sighs> called. Um, and did you have to go interview or is there yeah. sort of like a song and dance here to make yeah, sure Yeah, no, it was I interviewed on the phone and then yeah. I sat down with her as uh-huh. well. Um, and incredibly, uh, it's funny, when I sat down with her, we talked a lot about how to make sure- it's Basketball at Stanford. No, we talked a lot about our kids, my kids, uh, and how to make sure that we ra- I raise good kids. Um, we were talking a lot about that, Wow. Um, which is says a lot about her because that- is top of mind, right? When you think about moving your entire family to and being on a campaign, et cetera, she had the foresight to recognize that that piece was really important for me. Um, but, you know, whatever I do, I still want to keep pushing um, this need to have good people in public service, um, this need to really be at leadership tables mm. and make sure to to, to be representing others and the perspectives that you bring to that table, not just being thankful to be at it. Uh, so we'll see what's next. Amanda Renteria, thank you so much. Very interesting. We will see what's next. Let's keep an eye on her. Thanks for staying with us here. Thanks. Thanks for being on. I love this kind of stuff. Sigue Mexico en el Copa del Mundo también. Hey, have you heard of genetic testing by now? You probably have. Yes, for the first time in history, we are able at a simple and affordable transaction to basically spit into a plastic tube, mail it off, and find out what your genes are all about. I love working with DNAfit.com because it's so simple. You get a wonderful infographic report, which is easy to understand. You don't have to wade through a lot of science. Yes, you're going to get a detailed printout of many, many pages talking about the interactions of the various genes that are present and expressed in your body or not and how that affects your health. But the one-page infographic, that's when we're really talking because you can get actionable tips and insights that you have an elevated need for vitamin D, that you have a low tolerance for alcohol or a high tolerance for caffeine or lactose or omega-3s or antioxidants, the most important and life-changing insight that I received from my DNA fit test was that my genetics reveal a muscular makeup that's 54% power and strength and only 46% endurance. In other words, I was banging my head against the wall as an endurance athlete for years and years, training in a manner that was not optimally aligned with my genetic predispositions. Don't waste 20 years like I did not knowing what your genetics are all about when it comes to your dietary habits and exercise protocol. Check out dnafit.com. You'll learn a lot about genetic testing when you visit their website. Take the test, get your infographic, and you'll go from there. And because DNA Fit loves the Get Over Yourself podcast, they have created a special super-duper 30% discount off of all their products just by entering the code G-O-Y-30 when you're checking out. And if you have already ordered the fun, exciting Ancestry.com package, a great gift idea where you can get your family involved and everyone sends in their spit sample and you can get your ancestry. I'm 46% Ireland and 44% uh, England, Western Europe. I'm a pure breed. 
I don't know if that's good or bad. With dogs, it's bad. Probably with humans, not great either. But I am what I am, said Popeye and I, and my sister and my brother and my mom and dad all have our fun reports to look and see all this cool stuff at Ancestry.com, so check them out. But if you did an Ancestry.com report, or if you've done a 23andMe genetic report, the new technology allows DNA Fit to pull from the same central database and produce their fitness, health, diet, exercise genetic infographic for much less cost because you've already gone through the DNA sequencing from the other sources. So check that out on dnafit.com and leverage what you may have already done or get started with DNA Fit and get your diet and exercise right with that awesome 30% discount, G-O-Y-30. Hey, it's Brad to talk about my buffalo-fueled lifestyle. Yes, it is incredible food, 100% grass-fed and finished. Check out wildideabuffalo.com. They have a wonderful website acquainting you with the benefits of eating a sustainably raised animal from start to finish. It goes beyond organic where they're in harmony with the environment and you're eating the ultimate nutritional quality animal, something to really consider and think about when we think about the disastrous contrast with the horrible, miserable life of the feedlot animal who's stuffed full of crappy junk food, including candy with their wrappers on sometimes. (laughs) Oh, mercy. When you taste this, when you take one bite of a buffalo steak or a buffalo burger, cook it plain if you want to do a proper test. Just take it with nothing, no seasoning, no spices, no sauces. Take one bite And you tell me if I'm wrong. Nope, I'm going to be right. Wow, Brad was right. Everyone who eats Wild Idea Buffalo is right. Here's what you do. Follow Brad's instructions carefully. Visit wildideabuffalo.com and hit the order button. They have organized everything for you with beautiful pictures. Click on monthly specials. Try their bundles so you get free shipping. If you're on a budget, hit the ground bison and burger section. They have all these different flavors and packages. And if you have pets and you care about them, you'll click on the pet food section and order up for those beautiful animals too. They deserve to eat healthy food instead of garbage in a bag. WildIdeaBuffalo.com. Check it out today. Thank you for listening.